This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. New York Attorney General Letitia James said her civil investigation of the Trump Organization has morphed into a criminal investigation, making her the second state official who might bring criminal charges against the former president. Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. has also been investigating Trump for potential criminal behavior and won a court fight to get access to his federal tax returns. Joining me is Greg Farrell, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. So, Greg, what's the focus of the New York AG's investigation? It has primarily been around certain properties, most notably Seven Springs up in uh, Westchester County, certain properties that it appears as though the Trump Organization was able to apply for, like, a conservation easement, allowing a big tax abatement, but that the amount of the abatement is based on a much higher valuation of the property than what, you know, a local real estate broker would tell you. In other words... You know, the $21 million abatement is based on like a, I'm not sure if it's two or $300 million valuation of the property. The property has been either on the market or appraised at less than $20 million. So to value it for the purpose of getting a bigger tax benefit at 10 times that amount is something that the uh, AG's office has been looking into. The Attorney General of New York, there are certain things that are in their purview. One is charities, charitable uh, organizations, and to that extent, the AG's office, Letitia James and her predecessor, Barbara Underwood, have been very aggressive about going after the Trump Foundation to the point where the Trump Foundation has been shut down. So the other area you know, in their bailiwick is um, taxes. And so this is the focus that James has brought to it. We don't know everything she's looking at, but I, presumably there are other probably similar discrepancies for other claims that benefit the Trump organization tax-wise. Whether or not it's, it's wrong or just an aggressive kind of valuation that uh, a normal person might want to use every April 15th, that's to be determined. But that's been her focus. And the Manhattan DA's investigation started with the hush money payments. Where is that at this point? So that grew out of the Michael Cohen saga several years ago. In 2018, Michael Cohen, the former personal lawyer to Donald Trump, ended up pleading guilty to a, a number of crimes. But the one that started his problems was a campaign finance violation that grew out of some hush money payments he made on behalf of candidate one, as the uh, indictment uh, from the Southern District of New York described it, hush money payments he made to uh, Stormy Daniels, basically for the purpose that she would not say anything about her you know, alleged affair with Donald Trump years and years earlier. This came at a time just weeks before the 2016 election. So given all that was going on at that time, it would have been hurtful to candidate number one, obviously Donald Trump, if some basically, you know, porn star actress claimed some kind of a liaison that would hurt him with the evangelical community, possibly, back then. So Michael Cohen was charged with campaign finance violations, but no one, neither obviously not the president nor any executive from the Trump organization was charged. However, the facts that came out of that prosecution indicated that Cohen was reimbursed in 2017 while Trump was president through the Trump organization through a series of monthly retainer payments uh, over a 10-month period that more than made up for not only the $130,000 payment, but the tax gross up associated with that, as well as some kind of an extra bonus of 50000 or more for undescribed purposes. But that was not in the paperwork. The paperwork didn't say this monthly payment to Michael Cohen is to reimburse him for paying off a porn star. Instead, it was positioned as a retainer, which would be a normal type of thing you'd expect to have a lawyer on. In the state of New York, 
there is a law that companies have to maintain accurate books and records. And it's not so much that you know they have to get all the, the pennies and dollars correct. It's also basically the purpose of the law is to prevent companies from laundering, if you will, or using making up phony invoices to paper over or cover illicit activity, fraudulent activity. So you can't pay off someone or pay a bribe to someone, but just describe that as an expenditure for you know, new equipment or a retainer to a lawyer. Those are just hypothetical examples. So that's a powerful law. And when all this information came out about the way the Trump organization you know, classified its reimbursement to Michael Cohen, it was clear that there might be a books and records violation here involving, you know, covering up what could be described as fraudulent or unlawful activity. In addition to that, Michael Cohen, when he testified before the House Intelligence Committee, after he decided to plead guilty, and uh, when he was basically saying he'd come clean, he also mentioned some other areas of vulnerability for the Trump organization, namely that they would either lowball or highball asset values, depending on whether or not they were dealing with a bank and looking for a loan, in which case, you know, they might inflate the value of, you know, their claimed value of assets. Or an insurance company, they might claim that, oh, no, no, it's not worth that much, so that the cost of carrying the insurance or insuring a particular property would be lower. So the DA's office has not announced what it specifically is looking at, but in a series of filings that emerged when it, during its 18-month battle that led to the Supreme Court over getting Trump's eight years of Trump tax returns, you know, the district attorney did cite a number of instances where, you know, the media had claimed that Trump, you know, basically did this uh, as a basis or the areas in which he wanted to look. So I think it's a safe assumption that that's where the DA's criminal investigation has been headed. The New York AG says they've informed the Trump organization that the investigation is no longer purely civil in nature. We're now actively investigating the Trump organization in a criminal capacity. What does that mean? Are they doing more than what the Manhattan DA is doing? What's going on? No, I think it's actually, that sounds kind of ominous, but the rest of the statement says they're working closely with the Manhattan DA's office. And I think what they are doing is that the Venn diagram of what the DA's office is looking at and what Letitia James, the AG's office, is looking at, there are a number of issues like this estate in Westchester that are of common interest to them. So it makes no sense to have two different sets of lawyers you know, state lawyers looking and putting together their own cases, one civil and one criminal for this. So like in a real world, I think basically where there are, you know, overlaps and where Vance is doing something that has criminal implications, the AG's office is basically going to cooperate and work with them. And the way you do that is by deputizing a couple of lawyers from the AG's office as basically assistant district attorneys or deputy district attorneys for the purpose of this investigation. So basically, you know, a couple of people from Letitia James's office are going to be deputized to work with Vance's team directly and get over whatever legal hurdles might otherwise exist, keeping the two, you know, investigations separate. So it's not so much a huge expansion of her investigation, but it's a sharpening and it raises the stakes for people who are involved in that. If you have a civil investigation and the Trump organization and Trump himself have dealt with civil lawsuits and dished them out, been on the business end of them and uh, on both sides of them over many years, you know, if you're willing to play the game and lawyer it out and basically go after each other in court over many years, um, that's one way of making a case go away or, or eventually, you know, make some kind of a payment to make it go away and no one gets hurt, um, really. 
if something's criminal, people might get hurt. Somebody might get charged with a crime and might face a jail sentence somewhere. So suddenly, if you're a senior executive of the Trump Organization and you've been dealing with the AG's office, you know, the calculus changes, you know, with, depending on what you say or how you act, you know, you could get dragged into a criminal case that you were hoping to avoid. So I think it's more that's the, the real, you know, the oomph from her announcing this, uh, that, that she's working with the DA's office as part of a criminal case, is that this is more serious. And now there's more firepower for the DA's office to work with. And also, the Manhattan DA is the only known investigator that has access to Trump's tax returns. Yes, but um, the, as, the, as Attorney General of the state of New York, um, Letitia James, you know, since she's basically reviews tax compliance in the state, she hasn't made any statements to this effect, but I'd be surprised if she doesn't have at least Trump's state tax records already, because they're well within her power. She doesn't need to sue the Trump organization to get them. She has the ability to go straight to the state office of you know, state tax returns and have them turn them over. And I'm sure um, you know, that she's, she's honored if she's done that, you know, all the secrecy and you know, confidential aspects of that, you know, not leaking it out, but using it, using that material to look into and investigate the areas that are of interest to her. So can the AG bring criminal charges? Normally, no. So that's why this is significant. When, when the AG finds through a course of a, an investigation that might be civil in nature, that actually there might be criminal activity, A, you could turn it over to someone like the Manhattan District Attorney or some other district attorney in another part of the state, depending on where the conduct was. Um, You could turn it over, or in this case, since you've got your own full-bore investigation, work with that district attorney. So that's, you know, that's what's happening here. I think there are some rare instances where the AG might be able to commence a criminal prosecution of its own, but it's, that's not basically what they do. It's a, largely a consumer protection, you know, the Consumer Protection Agency of the state. So, you know, its powers are overwhelmingly civil. In investigating the Trump Organization, let's talk about the Manhattan DA for a second. Could that lead to criminal charges against Trump personally, or would it just be against the organization? That could be uh, all of the above. So, uh, depending on what the DA's office finds, they could make a case that uh, it's not clear whether any individual, senior individual at the Trump Organization, you know, knowingly or willfully broke the law by doing X. But it's clear the organization did, so we can sue the, the Trump Organization and uh, you know end up getting some kind of a settlement from that business entity, but not the senior executives. Um, so that will be a charging if, if there is wrongful conduct there that they find and. Uh, then that's a charging decision. Do we have enough to go after an individual, you know, uh, at this organization? And, you know, just to step back, um, you know, Trump, you know, is and has been, or at least uh, before becoming president, very much involved in every aspect of the Trump organization. The Trump organization is not General Motors. You know, it's not a company with hundreds of thousands of employees and all sorts of far-flung offices. It is a mom-and-pop store that has this prestige brand and branded products and branded properties around the world, but it's it's Trump and his kids and a very, very small cast of others. And everything we've learned about Trump as a manager, you know, and uh, the fact that even the kids don't make unilateral decisions, but they they make sure they get approval from him before doing things, at least up through 2016, indicates that if there is wrongful conduct, it would be difficult for him to say, like, oh, I had no idea, because he really is, you know, at the center of 
all the business activity of the Trump Organization. Another person at the center is Alan Weisselberg, who is the chief financial officer of the Trump Organization. And there appears to be an effort to get him to cooperate with the investigation. His former daughter-in-law is cooperating with both the investigation by the New York AG and the Manhattan DA. So is there pressure here to try to get him? Yeah, clearly. And Bloomberg and a number of other news organizations you know, wrote that, I think, back in March, that based on some of the early interviews with people, yes, like, you know, the uh, former daughter-in-law of Trump CFO, Alan Weisselberg, it seemed clear that the DA's office was going down the road of trying to get enough, gather enough information to hopefully get Weisselberg himself, the CFO, to flip. Uh, That would be a tremendous shortcut if they could succeed at that effort a guy like Weisselberg, you know, knows everything about Trump finances. He's been doing this job for decades, even before Trump himself took over. He worked for Trump's father. So he knows everything about the organization. He controls all the flows of funds. And we should note that in Michael Cohen's prosecution at the federal level in 2018, the uh, prosecutors from the Southern District of New York gave Weisselberg, I guess, a temporary uh, or at least specific limited immunity from prosecution to cooperate around the narrow area of Michael Cohen. So presumably that's where their information came about, you know, how the payments and the retainers were constructed in order to uh, compensate Cohen for paying Stormy Daniels off. So Weisselberg got limited immunity there, clearly here, and, you know, it's clear that the federal prosecutors did that because that's the easiest way to get this done is go through the guy who constructed and probably either constructed or facilitated the payment to Cohen. He knows information like that on almost every transaction. So if there are other transactions that are questionable or worth more further review or open to interpretation, if the DA's office could get Weisselberg on board, Weisselberg would be able to tell them, you know, this was the purpose. This is why we did X. This is why we did Y. This is why we didn't tell so-and-so about what we were doing, etc. Looking forward, if there are ever going to be criminal charges against the Trump organization or against Trump himself, the DA's office, it would help a lot for them to have some kind of a Sherpa, some kind of a guide within the organization, someone with credibility and direct knowledge saying, uh, yeah, this is why we did this. If you look back, and you and I have talked about Enron before, um, one of the key breakthroughs of the Enron task force was getting the company's chief financial officer, Andy Fastow, to plead guilty and cooperate. Because once you have him, the CFO on board, he can tell you the purpose of this, the purpose of that, and the purpose of the other thing. And it makes it very easy to spell it out clearly to a jury that, you know, the conduct that was going on was wrongful. And the people who were doing this knew it was wrong at the time. A deposition was ordered of Eric Trump in the AG's investigation. Do we ever find out what was said no, that's uh, uh, you know still being held within the AG's office, and there was a bit of a kerfuffle over, I think, over whether or not he was going to had the time to do it. Um, you know, uh, he decided ultimately to to go ahead and give that. But no, that's not been been made public. Does James' involvement now, this sort of united front, does that ensure that because Cyrus Vance is not running for DA again, that whoever takes over? that that investigation will go forward? Is that part of this, or is that not even part No, of I don't think so. I think that's separate. I think it's just a, a strange coincidence that this is going on in a year in which Cy Vance has decided not to run for re-election. So, uh, you know, whoever's 
succeeds him next January will inherit what exists of the Trump Organization uh, investigation and its partnership with the AG's office. So, you know, I don't think so. Uh, I think this would have happened either way, even if Vance was still there. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Greg. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Greg Farrell. You may not know who Melinda Ann French is, but you surely know who Melinda Gates is. As Bill and Melinda Gates divorce, the question arises, what's the value of a last name, especially when that name is Gates and the Gates fortune is valued at over $145 billion? Joining me is Greg Bordelon, a professor at the University of Maine School of Law. When a woman marries, what determines whether her last name is changed to her husband's legally? So I want to I want to clarify. Obviously, since the Supreme Court decision in 2015, we're not necessarily talking about gender-based name changes. Although historically, it is a woman who takes a man's last name. The legal argument for valuing surnames with respect to assets and marital division can happen across genders. So, with that preface, to answer your question directly, it's simply historical custom that couples who decide to enter into the marriage union agree to take the name of one spouse or a combination of both spouses, or retain their birth name throughout the duration of the marriage. So you get married, you're a woman, you want to use your husband's last name. Do you have to file any papers or just start using the name? It depends on the state, and I think that's one of the fascinating points about this issue. Certainly, if, if the matters that were related to the article I wrote or addressed in a divorce decree, they're all moot. But the idea of how that name changes legally is pretty diverse across the 50 states. Some states have a legal requirement where you actually have to go down to a courthouse and do a proper name change, just as anyone would, irrespective of marriage. Others have these series of presumptions, right, that you change your name on a Social Security card, a driver's license, they rise to these levels of customary presumptions that your name is changed. So much to the point that when you get out of that marriage, your name is still legally the name you had when you changed it through custom. And so that patchwork of laws is something that I think I want to explore next and how that patchwork relates to the point of the article, the valuing of the name. Can you use one form of your name, let's say your name as a single person, in your personal life and another in your professional life? I think so. And again, the, to, to be clear, the article was focusing on sort of monetization of the name. It's, it has nothing to do, of course, with uh, the personal preferences or the personal choices within the institution of marriage, why people would decide to use or not use a name. There are a whole host of reasons that I believe family law colleagues address in the context of the law and social issues. Uh, if children want the names of certain uh, parents, etc. But I would not see a reason why a person would be able to use the name commercially, that's an easier word to say, uh, than personally. Um, but then it gets into the idea of sort of the property element of the name. Does it have some sort of monetary value? Is it a form of intellectual property? If you're using it only for professional or commercial reasons, does that somehow impact those presumptions I talked about that the state may have on whether or not your name changes? So let's discuss some of the questions that come up when there's a divorce. Can the woman continue to use her ex-husband's name? Yeah, irrespective of the patchwork uh, that I talked about with, uh, with states, the clear answer, I think, for most states, of course, is that the answer to that is yes, that the custom, if it is a state with have these customary presumptions, the name stays the same legally. Of course, if it's a formal declaration, you have to go down to a courthouse and use your name, the name is still yours, and you can use it. 
The opposite of that is true, too, meaning that when you get out of the union that has legally changed the name, whether by mandate or by custom, you have to do some other legal mechanism to get out of the name. And that's why most divorce petitions, when they are filed, have a separate section for what are you going to do about your name? Are you going to change your name? Are you going to keep your name? And I think what's interesting about the economic value of the name is that in this particular case that I wrote about, Melinda Gates actually checked the box. It said she intends to continue using the Gates name. So so you mentioned Tina Turner in your I article. Did. Is that why she asked the judge to allow her to continue to use the name Turner? Well, um, I guess I was inspired because I watched uh, What's Love Got to Do With It Again right before I wrote <laughs> You know, popular story, but I believe this is how it happened, was that she was going to absolve all assets that she was entitled to as part of the marital community, right? She didn't want any revenue from any song royalties. She co-wrote with Ike Turner. She said, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here, all I want is the name. I worked hard for that name. I want to use that name. And I guess, yes, the presumption would be that she wanted that name because that was the name that she would be recognized under professionally. If it's not mentioned in a divorce petition, if it is not an affirmative request for incidental relief to get out of the marriage, can the spouse who originally had the name come back at any time in the future and say, hold on, hold on, this person's using my name. I'm entitled to some of the fruits of the use of that name. And I would imagine, since this is an open question now, to that specific point, that the answer to that is no, is that you've essentially you waived your right to do that since you didn't do it uh, at the beginning with the divorce petition. Just to be clear, can the husband, let's say it's a man and woman here, can the husband say at the divorce, I don't want her to keep using my last name? I would imagine it's like any other civil cause of action. He can say it. Uh, She would be legally entitled to it based on the presumptions or the customs or by legally having it changed, right? Whatever the state law allows the, the spouse who has adopted the new name to keep. So he can certainly allege that I would like to have my soon-to-be former wife remove the use of that family name. That would probably be, and I haven't really practiced family law that detailed in the past, it would probably be an issue of compromise, right? Well, you get to keep the house, we split the assets this way, but this is how I want the name to use. And in reality, when you're not dealing with billions of dollars, that's, that's how it's dealt, right? It's, it's dealt as part of the incident of the divorce. And, but I do not believe that there is any... Uh, sort of direct legal way that a man can say, you now must stop using my, my last name. The name is essentially the former spouse's, and it now becomes the other spouse's upon divorce. So now how do you determine the value of a name? Have any cases spoken about this? Not, I believe, in the context of this specific issue. They have talked about more generally in, in the context of intellectual property cases, the value of a name, and that's why I believe most states make it a little bit more onerous for people to change their name if they seek to change their name to, to get to reap economic benefits off of the name change, right? So I can't go down to uh, the, the county courthouse where I live and change my name to Elvis Presley. There would probably be some additional burden for me to prove to ensure that I'm not committing fraud that the estate of Elvis Presley would, would want to protect against. But how that issue, just what is your name, sort of reconciles with this issue, the custom of marriage is what I think is fascinating, right? Because that name does change, whether it be legally or formally. And then since that person is entitled to that name post-dissolution of marriage, you can't really make that person change the name, as we just talked about. What are the rights of the other spouse if that name is then subsequently used for economic gain? Uh, And that's the open question that I don't believe a court has addressed. So putting it in the Melinda Gates Bill Gates' divorce Mm -hmm. situation, 
if Melinda Gates in the future comes up with some huge discovery on her own, <laughs> would Bill Gates have, not that he would do this, but would he have any claims to the profits from that? Here there is a mechanism by which this probably could, if it happens to become an issue, be uh, analyzed. And it's the, it's the goodwill element of how businesses are, are, are valued. So even though this particular, particular issue we're talking about has not come up in a divorce, the issue of spouse joint-owned businesses and how those assets are divided very often come up in divorce. And so how do you value the business? You have to go on the business's propensity to make money in the future with estimates known as enterprise goodwill. And so the sub-element to that is called personal goodwill. And I really think that there is a direct way for state courts in marital dissolution cases to apply this issue of name recognition through that personal goodwill avenue. Can you sum it up for us here? It's not an issue if it's called for in divorce, which we already talked about, and most of the time it is. It's not an issue to be incredibly candid for people who don't have sizable assets to divide, right? And it's not an issue for anybody who uses the name in a context outside of their personal context. So you're really only left with um, millionaires and billionaire spouses who use the name independent of their personal existence. That's, uh, that's not a lot of people left. So it's only if you use it in a professional context? Yeah, I think so, right, because there's really nothing to value, right? Um, and, and I think a judge would probably be very much not inclined to tell a former husband, hypothetically, to say, no, you cannot make your soon-to-be former wife stop using this name if she is asserting in a personal context. This is what binds me to the children. This is what helps the children socialize um, to me as their mother now that the marriage is, is dissolved, those sorts of things. So I don't really see this would ever come up. I don't see how it could come up in a personal context because there's really no valuing, um, economic valuing that has to happen. What made you decide to write about this? It's a fascinating concept. I mean, it is a Western tradition that has been around for probably thousands of years, right? But there's not really been this deep dive discussion of, okay, so what are the the asset valuation implications of that once the bond that puts the name there no longer exists. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Greg. That's Greg Bordelon, a professor at the University of Maine School of Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.